no question the forest is, is, is dying and has been for the last decade. Five years ago, alarm bells were ringing. The Waitakere Ranges are under serious threat from Cody dieback. Many of the standing giants are dead or dying. There were calls for tough action to be taken. The Kawarau Amaki wants to stop people entering the ranges. Locals and visitors who enjoy them back the ban and say Arahui may be the only way to protect the giants of the New Zealand forest. But what's happened since then? It came as a surprise to researchers checking the health of kauri at Auckland's Waitakere Ranges. The incurable kauri dieback disease isn't spreading as widely as feared and hasn't been found in the centre of the forest. After four years of being closed to the public, Auckland's biggest Cody forest is now reopening. The Waitakere Ranges have undergone huge mitigation work, as well as an upgrade in 40 kilometres of track to bring them up to Cody safe standards. A $32 million national plan to protect Cody trees from dieback disease is being celebrated as a significant step towards saving the giants of the forest. The government acknowledges it's been a slow road to fund the plan. Kia ora, I'm Sarah Robson, and today on The Detail, the fight against Cody dieback disease. How far have we come, and are we any closer to a cure? The Waitakere Ranges for me are very much a touchstone. They're a place that I feel I need to return to um, in terms of being able to, to recharge. This is Lisa Tolich, Auckland Council's Cody Dieback Biosecurity Manager. They're quite awe-inspiring. Um, you walk into one of those immense, mature Cody forested stands and I guess I compare it to a cathedral. It's it's just such a, a sense of awe that you're in the presence of trees that are not just ancient in their own right. I mean, we're talking trees that can be upwards of a thousand years or more, but we're also talking trees that whakapapa back to Gondwana land. You know, their, their ancestors connect right back to 180 million years ago. So you're in the presence of, of trees that have seen many, many things. So these are precious taonga. Very precious taonga. Not just in terms of um, what they are in their own right, but the whole ecosystems that they support. And um, they're a keystone species. They really set the tone for the forest. And there are so many um, different Cody associates, we, we term them as, that rely on Cody in terms of their very survival. Long ago, when the world knew only darkness, Tane, god of the forest, rose up, separating his parents, Ranginui and Papatuanuku, creating Te Ao Marama, the world of light. For thousands of years, he has watched over the forest and the creatures within. But now he needs our help. As you watch this, our precious Cody trees are being wiped out by a vicious disease called Cody dieback, a disease that is being spread by us, by our footprints, our walking poles, our dog's paws. Cody dieback was first found in New Zealand way back in 1972 on Aotea Great Barrier Island. It was detected in the Waitakere Ranges in 2006, prompting a massive response from government agencies, local iwi, environmental groups and council. Cody forests are special places. They are ours to care for and protect for the future. But a terrible disease is affecting our Cody, Cody dieback. 
This disease causes bleeding in tree death and could prove devastating to our forest. Cody dieback is spread by all soil movement. Can you describe for me what Cody dieback disease is and what it does to the trees? So Cody dieback disease is basically the symptoms that you see that the Codia are displaying and it is caused by a pathogen known as Phytophthora agathodicida. And this particular pathogen, um, part of a bigger family, many people would be familiar with the potato famine that occurred back in Ireland, same family. And um, there are other Phytophthora that exist in New Zealand that a lot of uh, agricultural, horticultural industries keep an eye on. So they're, they're threats to those industries. Now, in this particular situation, this pathogen infects the trees through their sensitive root systems. And what it does is it stops the uptake of water and important nutrients up through the trunk into the canopies of the tree. So it essentially starves itself. And that's why you see that thinning of the canopy, the dieback symptoms that we described, the loss of all of those leaves, that very skeletal, stark structure. Marion Wood is the co-lead of the Control, Protect, Cure research team, which is part of the Narako Taketake project, looking at ways to save trees from Cody dieback. She explains a bit more about the pathogen that causes the disease. It's associated with a microscopic fungus-like um, water mould organism, which is called Phytophthora axodicida. In its simplest form, this mould adopts two main forms in its life cycle. It's got this really robust sort of seed-like oospore stage. And this, this stage is one of the hardest ones to deal with because it's shown to survive within soil, both in the environment and on the soles of boots and on infected, infected equipment for several years. But there's also a second, less robust, but motile zoospore stage. And these spores are really, really interesting. Um, they're released from structures known as sporangia um, that are formed from the germination of those really robust oospores. So imagine then a bit like a seed, they develop these sporangia, come out there like these, um, almost like lollipop structures. And within the head of the lollipop, are these zoospores and they burst out into the environment. And these zoospores can, um, they're motile. They've got a little flagella, a little um, whip-like tail that allows them to propel themselves through water. So not only can they be moved passively through water, just flowing through the soil, but these zoospores with their ability, ability to um, direct themselves have been shown to, through chemical and electrical cues, be attracted to the kauri root hairs, and that's where the infection process can be initiated. Once the zoospores are in contact with the root hairs, they infect by growing thread-like mycelium into the root tissue. So they actually penetrate into the root tissues. And once a pathogen has become established, it's a subsequential damage to specialised tissues um, within the tree that carry the water and nutrients to the canopy. Um, so this damage um, happens as the pathogen takes hold within the plant, and that leads to the characteristic yellowing and thinning of the tree's canopy and ultimately death. Is there any cure? 
No, unfortunately, there's no cure. There are treatments out there that are being trialled, um, some to, to success. Uh, phosphite is one that was borrowed from the, the avocado industry and has been used to slow the progression of those symptoms. So th- there is hope, but that's very much at an individual tree level, not at a whole forest level. Rewind to 2017. A West Auckland iwi intends to place a rahui on the Waitakere Ranges and wants the council to enforce a ban on people entering, saying it's the only way to stop the spread of the killer kauri dieback disease. Te Kawarau Amaki intends to place the rahui on the park before the end of the year. The Auckland Council says that kauri dieback is spreading at an alarming rate with almost one in five trees in the ranges carrying the disease, making it the most infected area in the country. And then a few months later... He won't be able to go for a walk in Auckland's Waitakere Ranges soon. The forest is being closed in a drastic attempt to save it from Cody dieback. Well, the disease has doubled in the regional park in the past five years, but it's hoped by banning the public, other forests can be spared. Since then, tracks have been upgraded, sophisticated cleaning stations have been installed, and the public has been better educated about the threat Cody dieback poses. So what do we know about how far Cody dieback has actually spread in the Waitakere Ranges? So we've got three different surveys we can look to. Those earlier surveys back in 2010-11 and then again in 15-16 gave us a little bit of an idea of where we were seeing the, the symptomology of the disease and where the pathogen was at different sites. Unfortunately, we didn't have the technology that we have available today, and a lot has moved on from them. We've got remote sensing, which we can actually now use to map the, the population of Kauri and the Waitakere Ranges. So we know that there's more than 69,000 trees there. We were able to detect those. And from that, we were able to, to do a random survey and we could look at uh, a subset of those trees to look at the health of that population. So not just the sick trees, the ones that were actually healthy as well. That gave us the opportunity to do what we call a prevalence study. So the proportion of trees that were infected with the pathogen compared to you know, the total number of trees overall. So that came back at 10% across the whole of the Waitakere Ranges. Uh, in terms of trees that are symptomatic, that are showing signs of disease, that's a little bit higher at 16.5%. But you'd expect that difference between the two because there are other things that can cause um, symptomology as well. What we did find in the Waitakere Ranges was was quite surprising, actually. We found the pathogen was very localised. We found it to a a small number of localised sites, and they were around the edge of the ranges. So that heart, that inner sanctum of the Waitakere Ranges... Um, we actually haven't found the pathogen there at all. So that that gives us an awful lot of hope that our preventative measures and mechanisms can have an effect. We can close, we basically, the the stable door hasn't, you know, closed before the horse is bolted. You know, we've got a chance to do something about this. And we know far more now than we did five years ago about the pathogen that causes Cody dieback disease. There have also been improvements in soil testing and surveillance. So much more of that work can now be done remotely. 
But as Marion Wood explains, one key area of research has been around whether it's possible to detect the presence of the pathogen before a tree actually becomes infected. Being able to detect something before it is actually taken hold is really important because if you think in terms of the pathogen, it wants to infect the tree and it wants to complete its life cycle. And part of that life cycle is the development of the disease that we see by the thinning of the canopy, for example. But what is actually happening is that pathogen is developing more and more spores. And as you remember, they're the very robust, resistant spores that can hang around in the environment for multiple years. So the earlier we detect the presence of the pathogen and it infecting either directly the, the cowdy tree itself or just the presence in the soil, we want to stop that life cycle. We want to prevent the progression through to the production of spores because they're notoriously difficult to eliminate. And have we got the means to actually do that prevention work yet, or is that something that we're, that we're still developing? It's definitely something that we're still developing. We're looking at it from multiple angles. Um, one use um, that we have, one tool that we have, is actually the use of um, phosphite, um, which has been shown to be really quite useful in um, reversing the symptoms of the disease. While it doesn't actually cure the plant of the, the disease, it gives us more time to develop alternative strategies. And they could be things like um, we use in Mataranga Maori guided research, um, looking at the effects of bioactives extracted from Manuka and Kanuka and their effects upon the life cycle of the, the phytophthora itself. And they're showing very promising results in that they can actually interfere with that life cycle so we can break the life cycle. Because how long would it potentially take the disease to develop once the pathogen was, was detected in, in the soil nearby? How much time have we got to potentially intervene here? So in terms of intervention, I guess it's it, it, that's a difficult question to answer in that the pathogen could be present in the soil, but it's not the pathogen per se that um, is ultimately responsible for whether the tree will get infected. There are multiple environmental um, inputs, for example, um, water conditions, temperature conditions, um, the presence of coexisting other phytophthora. You know, do we need those to be present to get effective infection of the tree? However, once a tree does become infected, it can be anything up to 10 years before visible symptoms are actually seen by the human eye. Um, so the earlier we can interfere with that life cycle, the better it is for the survival of the cowdy tree. But what of those other environmental factors that could be at play? We've seen this research that's that's come out of the Waitakere Ranges. It seems that most of the disease is is limited to the periphery of the forest. What what does that potentially indicate to us around land use type factors? The fact that we're seeing the disease around the periphery of our um, native estate, you know, it does beg the question, is that a consequence of direct impact of human intervention? You know, um, it's possibly where there is most um, interplay between humans um, and the um, the Kauri woodland, or is it that because we're actually modifying the land use and the boundary up to the, the Kauri trees, 
is that are we causing like perhaps hotspots of um, pathogen um, accumulations? So recent research has actually demonstrated that land use has a major impact on whether soil becomes harbors for pathogens like Phytophthora exodicida. Um, so I guess we need to really look at what the use of the land that borders the, the Waitakere Ranges, for example, what are we doing there that is potentially adding to the impact of Phytophthora exodicida infections in cowrie trees? What impact is climate change going to have on Cody dieback and and I mean, people may not may not necessarily think Cody dieback climate change is going to be a relationship there, but but are the two quite intertwined? I think it's really important to remember that organisms don't exist in isolation; they're they're part of a very intricate web, and if they're not directly impacted, for example, by climate change, then something along the line of connection will be impacted, and ultimately they will. Um, respond to climate change. I think the important thing for Phytophthora is that they are waterborne molds. They need water to survive. They need that water, particularly in the, the stages of zoospore infection, to be able to actually complete the infection process. So um, you imagine if, I don't know, for example, if the, the cowries were becoming more waterlogged um, because of excessive rainfall or changes in water courses, then I think there will be a major impact from climate change. Absolutely. And the also the other thing to think about is the the stress of climate change upon plants. Now plants, they're stationary, they're static. They can't they can't run. If we if it starts to rain, we can move into the house or we put an umbrella up. But plants can't, they've got to be able to withstand the changes in the environment due to climate change, due to temperature, due to excessive or, or loss of water via rainfall. Plants have an ability to adapt, but only so much. If you were to fly over the Waitakere Ranges, how would you pick out a tree infected with Cody dieback? Yeah, really good question. So we use remote sensing techniques now, which um, is quite sensitive, but historically in the past we've used helicopters or fixed-wing aircraft. And an ecologist peering out the window of the helicopter is looking for some really visible symptoms. And what you see, um, looking down, aerial view of what's below you, you'll often be looking for those canopy trees that are poking out um, that are yellowing in leaves. You're looking for great big gaps in the canopy where you can see really visible signs of foliage loss. And yeah, you're looking for that at a snapshot in time. And then you want to fast forward, say, I don't know, a year, two years, three years, then look at that snapshot in time. And is there a change between the two? Are you seeing progressive loss of canopy? Is that loss of canopy expanding? So it's that change detection piece in the middle, which is what we're finding really fascinating now. And with remote sensing, we can look at um, yeah more regularly than what we would have done in the past. And that, that change that you are seeing, it's not happening as rapidly as you had perhaps feared? 
Yeah, so in terms of what we did in the Waitakere Ranges this time round, um, we haven't spent so much time in that change detection space. That's something that's ongoing with these new tools, so I'll be able to answer that um, in more detail, I'm sure, in about a year or two. But right now, what we're seeing more localised at an individual tree level is we're not seeing it moving as rapidly as we, we had feared. So... It's good that it is localised right now and that it's not spreading as, as quickly. It does mean we've still got the ability to contain. Are we ever going to find a cure for Cody dieback disease? Are we ever going to find a cure? Well, you know, I'm optimistic that we will. This cure might not be like a single silver bullet. Um, I think it will probably take the form of more of an integrated approach, you know, targeting both the pathogen itself targeting the health of the cowrie tree you know as we talked about the stress of the cowrie tree you know can you provide an environment where it doesn't have those additional stresses but also the local environment you know we need to be aware that you know are we causing hot spots or increased pathogen load because of the way that we're using neighboring land i think like any pathogen i think you know consider covid19 the role of evolution and the ability to mutate um, and even, you know, increase its ability to infect, it's a real and present threat to the search for any single cure. So I think we have to be agile, we've got to be flexible and we've got to follow the, the data, you know, as we um, come up with a, a cure. It, how long will that cure remain viable? You know, we've always got to be vigilant that there will be changes in the pathogen and we've got to be able to adapt our response um, to that mutated version. That's it for today. I'm Sarah Robson. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Mark Jennings. And thanks to Lisa Tolich and Marianne Wood. Matewa.